While I grew up on the border of northern Wisconsin and the upper peninsula of Michigan, I was blissfully ignorant of some important cultural and economic history of the area. The mines in the UP had mostly closed and ceased operating by the mid-60s, and what remained were shuttered mines, abandoned equipment laying rusting in fields, and huge piles of rock waste. Unbeknownst to me was that the whole reason for this area of the country being part of the United States was thanks to the efforts of Benjamin Franklin at the negotiations leading to the Treaty of Paris in 1783, a Meyer fun fact. Having been advised that the area was rich in copper, Franklin was instructed to make every effort to draw the border far enough north to assure that any copper deposits would be accessible to the emerging country. Sometimes referred to as Mr. Shaky Hands cartographer that gave Isle Royal to the UP instead of Canada, it is in dispute as to whether Franklin sneezed while drawing the border or suffered from benign tremors. Whatever the reason, he accomplished his goal. In 1841, Dr. Douglas Houghton, Michigan's first state geologist, was able to lay before the citizens of the states indisputable evidence of the great mineral wealth of the region, following which came topographic and linear surveys by state and federal governments. This made possible the opening of the mines and hundreds of location permits and leases were granted. By 1860, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was producing 6,000 tons of copper per year and the rest of the country about 2,000 tons. For the next 25 years, the vast majority of copper produced in the country came out of the UP, but Arizona and Montana were starting to overtake the top spot. In 1877, the Copper Queen ore body was discovered in Bisbee, Arizona, located a few miles from the southern border. By 1885, the Copper Queen had become one of the great copper mines of the world. By the turn of the century, a connection between Bisbee and the Upper Peninsula was made when a group out of Calumet, Michigan, suffering from Bisbee fever, organized a second mining company, the Calumet and Arizona Mining Company, to mine the available deposits. Within the United States, mining and production of copper are primarily located in the West, specifically Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, and Montana. According to the United States Geological Survey, production in these states and Michigan account for more than 99% of domestic copper production. Copper is used in many industries, including building construction, transportation, electronics, and consumer goods. Copper mining waste make up the largest percentage of metal mining and processing waste generated in the United States. 
the amount of marketable copper produced is small compared to the original material mined. Several hundred metric tons of ore must be handled for each metric ton of copper metal produced, thus generating large waste quantities. The legacy of mining is etched into the landscape and history of Arizona. It is part of the culture, economy, and environment. Indeed, copper is showcased as one of the five C's upon which the Arizona economy was founded. These five industries, cattle, cotton, citrus, climate, and copper are represented on the great seal of the state of Arizona. Bonjour and bienvenue. Hello and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and this podcast is a requested pod by Fun Fact Maniac Jeff, who spent the last five months in Arizona. Meyer Fun Facts dares ask the question, who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer? Please don't forget to email me your questions, thoughts, and suggested topics to MeyerFacts at gmail.com. I make a point to read them all and I hear you, especially with all the comments I'm getting in regard to our last two episodes. Now, let's get into this episode, the Bisbee Deportation, July 12, 1917. Arizona in the early 1900s was home to huge copper mining operations. The managers and engineers controlling these mines answered primarily to Eastern stockholders. During World War I, the price of copper reached unprecedented heights and the companies reaped enormous profits. By March of 1917, copper sold for 37 cents a pound. It had been 13 cents at the outbreak of World War I in 1914. With 5,000 miners working around the clock, Bisbee was booming. To maintain high production levels, the pool of miners was increased from an influx of Southern European immigrants. Although the mining companies paid relatively high wages, Working conditions for miners were no better than before the copper market crash in 1907-1908. Furthermore, the inflation caused by World War I increased living expenses and eroded any gains the miners had realized in salaries. The mining companies controlled Bisbee, not only because they were the primary employer but because local businesses depended heavily on the mines and miners to survive. Even the local newspaper was owned by one of the major mining companies, Phelps Dodge. The city was dominated by Phelps Dodge, which owned the Copper Queen Mine and two other mining firms, one being the formerly mentioned company with its roots in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the Calumet 
in Arizona Mining Company. President of Phelps Dodge is Walter S. Douglas. Douglas was also president of the American Mining Congress, an employer association. He had won office by vowing to break every union in every mine and restore the open shop. One of the most powerful men in Arizona, he and his family owned controlling interests in a number of Arizona newspapers, railroads, banks, as well as mines. A prime force behind the 1915 corporate counteroffensive to the Progressive Coalition, which had dominated early Arizona politics. He and his newspapers were instrumental in the unsuccessful campaign to recall the Progressive Arizona governor in 1915. Douglas regarded ridding the state of organized labor as a crusade. The general manager of the Calumet in Arizona mine, the second largest in Bisbee, was John Greenway, a graduate of Yale University. He fought in the Spanish-American War alongside Teddy Roosevelt as a rough rider. Greenway also managed the new Cornelia Copper Company of Tucson and various railroads and served on the Board of Regents of the University of Arizona. By 1917, the Industrial Workers of the World's Union's presence in Arizona had been increasing. The union had been particularly successful recruiting Bisbee's Mexican workers who were routinely given lower paying jobs outside of the mine. The IWW was also successful recruiting Southern European immigrants who were allowed in the mines, but given lower paying jobs. On June 24, 1917, the IWW presented the Bisbee Mining Companies with a list of demands. These demands included improvements to safety and working conditions, such as requiring two men on each machine and an end to blasting in the mines during shifts. Demands were also made to end discrimination against members of labor organizations and the unequal treatment of foreign and minority workers. Furthermore, the unions wanted a flat wage system to replace sliding scales tied to the market price of copper. The copper companies refused all IWW demands, using the war effort as justification. As a result, a strike was called, and by June 27th, roughly half of the Bisbee workforce, approximately 3,000 miners, was on strike. Tensions heightened when rumors spread asserting that the unions had been infiltrated by pro-Germans. Another rumor suggested that weapons and dynamite were cached around Bisbee for sabotage. Douglas was never one to pass on an opportunity to bust a union. He, other mining executives, the local sheriff Henry Wheeler, himself a former Rough Rider, along with local vigilante groups, the Citizens Protective League, 
an anti-union organization formed during a previous labor dispute, and the Workmen's Loyalty League, a group of miners loyal to the mining companies, all met to organize and deal with the strike. When we come back, the plan gets made and the deportation follows. On July 11, 1917, Sheriff Wheeler met with mining company executives to plan the arrest and deportation of striking miners. The plan of action was orchestrated by Douglas's company, Phelps Dodge, and executives provided a list of workers and others to Wheeler who were to be arrested. Phelps Dodge officials also coordinated with the executives of the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad, believed to be controlled by Douglas, who agreed to provide rail transportation for any deportees. The next day, starting at 2 a.m., calls were made to loyalty leaguers and the Citizens Protective League. By 5 a.m., about 2,000 deputies assembled one of the largest posses ever put together. All were deputized and wore white armbands to distinguish them from other mining workers. No federal or state officials were notified of the vigilantes' plans. The Western Union Telegraph Office was seized, preventing any communication to the town. At 6.30, Wheeler gave orders to begin the roundup. The vigilantes rounded up over 1,000 men, many of whom were not strikers or even miners, and marched them two miles to the Warren Ballpark, a local baseball field originally built in 1909 by, you guessed it, the Calumet and Arizona Mining Company. There, they were surrounded by armed vigilantes and urged to quit the strike. Anyone willing to put on a white armband was released. Phelps Dodge executives seized control of the telegraph and telephones to prevent news of the arrest and expulsion from being reported. Company executives refused to let Western Union send wires out of town and stopped the Associated Press from filing stories. John Greenway was the only one of the three mining company's managers present at the ballpark. On horseback, with a rifle across his saddle, he pleaded with the men to go back to work. At 11 a.m., a train arrived, and 1,186 men were loaded aboard boxcars inches deep in manure. Also boarding were 186 armed guards. A machine gun was mounted on the top of the train. The train traveled from Bisbee to Columbus, New Mexico, where it was turned back because there were no accommodations for so many men. On its return trip, the train stopped at Hermanus, New Mexico, where the men were abandoned. A later train brought water and food rations, but the men were left without shelter until July 14th 
when U.S. troops arrived due to a request by the governor of New Mexico to the federal government. Meanwhile, Bisbee authorities mounted guards on all roads into town to ensure that no deportees returned and to prevent new troublemakers from entering. A kangaroo court was also established to try other people's deemed disloyal to mining interest. These people also faced deportation. In effect, the mining companies kidnapped over 1,000 people, deported them by train under threat across state lines, and left them in the middle of nowhere. What's wrong with that? When we come back, we'll talk about what's wrong with that. Several months after the deportation, President Woodrow Wilson set up the Federal Mediation Commission to investigate. A five-member commission, including future associate Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, heard testimony for five days in November of 1917. In its final report issued on November 6th, the commission denounced the Bisbee deportation. Deportation was wholly illegal and without authority in law, either state or federal, the commissioners wrote. They further held that the copper companies were at fault in the deportation, not the IWW. On May 15, 1918, the U.S. Department of Justice ordered the arrest of 21 Phelps Dodge executives including some from the Calumet and Arizona Mining Company and several elected leaders and law enforcement officers from Bisbee and Cochise counties. The arrestees included Walter Douglas and John Greenway. Sheriff Wheeler was not arrested because he was by then serving in France with the American Expeditionary Force during World War I. A pretrial motion by the defense led a federal district court to release the 21 men on the grounds that no federal laws had been violated. The Justice Department appealed, but in United States v. Wheeler, 254 U.S. 281, Chief Justice Edward Wright wrote for the 8-to-1 majority that the U.S. Constitution did not empower the federal government to enforce the rights of the deportees as there was no federal kidnapping law. However, the states did have the power to prosecute people for interfering with the right to travel. Thus, the state of Arizona assumed the responsibility for criminal prosecutions. In 1920, the state of Arizona brought criminal charges against Harry E. Wooten, an ad hoc deputy on that July morning, a Phelps Dodge Copper Company employee, and Bisbee Loyalty League member as a single representative for 210 other defendants. After the state presented its largely uncontested case, that Wheeler and his posse had arrested and deported the strikers in violation of state law. Wooten pleaded self-defense and necessity over the state's opposition. 
Wooten's attorney, William Burgess, offered to prove that the IWW was, in effect, a conspiracy formed to overthrow the government. The strike was an effort to sabotage the war effort, and the strikers had intended violent action. Fun fact, maniacs, do we hear shades of the defense asserted by U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company in the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919? If you haven't listened, check out that earlier podcast. It is one of the most popular. Burgess further asserted that the government had refused assistance. The strikers could not have been detained in the county jail, and the members of the posse reasonably believed deportation was imminently necessary to preserve the peace. And he argued that these facts justify both self-defense and the defense of necessity. The court held that Wooten could not plead self-defense, but could plead the defense of necessity. When the defense finished presenting its case, the court instructed the jury as follows. If the jury believes that other and not unlawful means could have been resorted to by which the threatened peril could have well been averted, and that such a reasonable man would, under all of the circumstances, have believed that such other means could as well be adopted, the plea of necessity becomes unavailable. The jury deliberated for about 15 minutes before returning a verdict. Wooten was acquitted. No other criminal charges were ever brought or pursued. Some civil suits were brought against the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad and the copper companies. None of these suits came to trial because of out-of-court settlements, reportedly nominal in amounts. A prominent law professor recently observed in part, the Bisbee deportation was illegal and unjustified, but its perpetrators were never punished and its victims were never properly compensated. The government and the justice system failed in every way. It is a sad reminder of the fragility of civil liberties and the rule of law, especially in times of war. When we come back, the epilogue. Before we get to the epilogue, I want to give a quick shout out to Tiplock Home Services. Now that snow removal season is behind us, don't forget to call Dan or Brock at 608-575-7044 for help in handling any springtime and summer projects. I would be remiss if I finish this podcast without discussing my own personal interaction with copper mining executives and their lawyers. It was the fall of 1978 and I was doing a legal in internship with the Public Intervenors Office. 
The public intervener had been created in 1967 under the administration of Governor Warren Knowles and was answerable to the Wisconsin Attorney General and a Citizens Advisory Commission. Its primary mission was to protect public rights in water and other natural resources and ensure fair play and due process for matters of environmental concern. In a nutshell, it was tasked with carrying out what is known in Wisconsin as the public trust doctrine. This doctrine found its origins in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 that provided that navigable waters are held in trust by the state for the benefit of the public. With inland lakes in excess of 15,000 and over 33,000 miles of rivers and streams and 5 million acres of wetlands, the office had a lot to be concerned about. That semester, I spent the majority of my time assisting the lawyer for a small town located in Vilas County. The town of St. Germain had passed clear-cutting ordinances. These ordinances prohibited the practice of the clear-cutting of forest and woodlands along town roads and waterways to the depth of 100 feet in order to protect local tourist trade. As was typically the case, a large timber and paper corporation, Owens, Illinois, was seeking to invalidate those ordinances. My assistance was an attempt to counteract the disproportionate financial resources brought to bear on the local township. One day, my boss came into my office and asked me to attend a meeting with executives and lawyers of the Kennecott Mining Company. Kennecott had filed an application with the state to allow it to open a mine along the shores of the beautiful Flambeau River located in northwest Wisconsin. The problem was that the waste from that mining operation sometimes referred to as tailings, would mix with oxygen and water, causing the creation of sulfuric acid. The sulfuric acid, in turn, would leach into the groundwater, and in this case, directly into the Flambeau River, causing a small-scale environmental disaster. I can only imagine that those executives and lawyers from Kennecott must have felt that they had entered into an alternative universe when they met with us. The representatives from Kennecott all wore suits that were worth more than the car I was driving at the time. On our side, two lawyers modestly dressed and four interns in blue jeans and long hair were basically telling the Kennecott representatives to pound sand until they solved the waste disposal problem. I later learned that Kennecott referred to that meeting as their meeting with the People's Republic of Wisconsin. Years later, 
Kennecott obtained a permit to operate the mine and did so from 1993 through 1997. In 1995, the Office of the Public Intervener was eliminated by legislation. Its work continues today in the form of a nonprofit known as Midwest Environmental Advocates. One of its board members happens to be former public intervener Tom Dawson, who has agreed with me to be a guest on a future show. That concludes this episode of Meyer Fun Facts, the Bisbee Deportation. Thanks so much for listening in, and I hope you plan to join us next week when we anticipate to have a special guest, known historian Michael Jacobs, talking about the history of the KKK in Wisconsin. Remember, send me those questions and suggestions at MeyerFacts at gmail.com. Until next week, take care.